I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back, y'all, to another episode of Aggie Hoops Weekly. And guys, we have two wins in one podcast. We're going to talk about the home win against Georgia, the road win against Bama, and we might gloss over a uh, ugly effort at home against Florida. But guys, seven and six in the SEC. This is a fun time to be a fan. Let's roll. back to Aggie Hoops Weekly. We have gotten to the portion of the schedule where the climb gets decidedly uphill. Things get a little bit tougher for the Aggies, but we finished the week two and one. So I'm I'm quite impressed with, with where this team is. David, don't look now, but we are above 500 on the season and above 500 in conference play. How did we get here? So I don't know how we got here. And the the perspective really flipped about halfway through uh, the 10-day period since we last spoke. Um, and I'm going to talk specifically about halftime of the Georgia game because we were down nine at home against Georgia, who was our last easy game remaining on the schedule. And in our two preceding games, we had been crushed by 20 against South Carolina and by 17 against Florida. And I'm sitting there, Blake, you know, we've lost our last two badly. We're at home against our easiest team remaining on the schedule. We're down nine at halftime. And I honestly thought, this is it, right? We've we had a really fun resurgence, enough to give the fans hope for the future years of the Buzz Williams era. But the guys have just we, they've hit the wall, and we're about to really spiral as we approach the difficult part of our schedule. But like I said, still job done. Enough, enough of a of a resurgence in the middle of the season to give you something to sink your teeth into uh, in year two and beyond. And I'll be damned if we didn't completely flip that Georgia game on its ear and then go on the road and beat Alabama. So like you said. We're seven and six. We're thirteen and twelve overall. I saw a reference to us in the NIT bracketology article, which is enough to get Buzz Williams Coach of the Year consideration, in my opinion. <laughs> it's it's been a really really interesting ten days. Um, and and like I said, I, I I was very very wrong, and I could not be happier that I was wrong. But I have a question for you. How did we do this? Because we're going to talk about these things the way we always do uh, in black and white before we get down into the gray matter. But I kind of want to lead with the gray matter here. What exactly in your mind has happened here to put us in this position? Yeah, on the surface, none of this makes sense, right? Everything feels like these games aren't ones that we're supposed to be winning. If you look at the the expected win percentages, according to Ken Palm and other other sources, I know you and I are are big Ken Palm fans. We shouldn't be we shouldn't be winning these games. We probably even shouldn't be competing in these games. Yeah, but we were ten ten percent tonight. Ten percent. Ten percent on the road at Bama. That's that's incredible, and and come away with a nice victory. So I think that I, I know how you loathe uh, cross board analogies, but I'm I'm going to insert one here. We're like the Navy football team or, okay. you know, yeah, we're, okay. when, when my, my youngest brother was in high school, uh, they ran the wing T offense and, and my, my youngest brother graduated, I think in 2012, but they, they ran the wing T who, who was running the wing T in, in, in any time after 
1995, right? But <laughs> right. but they ran the wing tee all the way to a state semifinal. Why does that work? Because nobody else is doing it. It completely flips everything on its head in terms of preparation. Teams don't know how to prepare for the Aggies. In, a, in the day and age where everything is up-tempo, a lot of three-point shooting, spacing the floor and four, four guards, five guards, A&M doesn't do that. A&M grinds it out. We're going we're gonna to run the shot clock down. We're going to play solid defense and force you to run the shot clock down. It's, it's Buzz's possession number. It, it's all of those things combined. Teams don't know how to prepare for this. Florida, to their credit, they knew how to prepare for this. They were ready. But I think we catch a lot of teams off guard where they look at the rankings and they look at things and say, well, A&M's struggled and they're, they're not that great. And they, I think they take this. I think they take this thing lightly, and and they don't quite understand how to deal with a possession oriented offense in a in a college game that's not really suited to that anymore. So I, I think it just it catches a lot of people off guard, and we're the beneficiary of that. And you said that they don't know how to deal with it, or that they don't fully understand it. I don't fully understand it, and I've been watching every minute of basketball this team has played, and I, I don't fully understand it. So I can imagine how difficult it would be to grind through a season's worth of film to try to build a game plan in 48 hours. I thought Texags used an interesting phrase uh, in the buildup to this latest game against Bama. There was an article entitled, effectively, it was something to the lines of, can the Aggies stay on the narrow path they've built to victory? And And, and the way they framed it was, there really is a set of criteria we have to meet to compete. It's not these aren't our winning criteria. This is this is the cost of admission, right? And it's the things we have to do that you laid out that we have become pretty proficient at. Um, I have one throwaway stat here, Blake, that I've been saving, and I didn't know when to bust it out, and I think it's right now before we jump into the Florida game. We are the second best team at keeping the opponent outside the arc. That is to say, we force a higher percentage of three point attempts than all but one team in the entire country. And that one team is Syracuse Orange, the 1-3-1 of death. This is the extended zone that no one's been able to solve for 20 years. The, the, this is, I mean, you have coaching clinics on how to attack this zone, how to get the ball inside the, the three-point line, let them get a good shot off, right? Syracuse has made their hay on this. They've won national titles on that exact approach. And they're the only team better at this than we are, right? So that, I think that puts in context just how disciplined we are and just how effective we are at doing it, what Buzz wants us to do. So anyway, I just thought that was a cool stat. I've, I've noticed we've been 350, 352 out of 353 in that percentage for quite some time. And when I saw that 353 was Syracuse, I was like, all right, I'm going to file that one away. That, that's a fun stat. <laughs> that is that's a great stat. And, and it's a testament to what Buzz has built here, right? He's built a program where these guys are buying into the style of play. Yes, it's unorthodox. Yes, it's different. It's not what everyone else is doing, but it's effective. And even when we don't have the same level of talent as a lot of these other teams, we're still in a very competitive position when we execute the game plan and are able to meet those criteria. We're, we're in the thick of things. We are. And, and let's talk Florida. And I, I want to spend the least amount of time on this game. It, it's just not – it wasn't that interesting of a game, and they, they pulled us apart pretty good. But I want to open, Blake, by saying thank you to Nate Oates and thank you to Tom Crean 
for apparently just not watching film of this game because Florida, it was a clinic on how to tear apart the system you and I just spent five minutes evangelizing, right? I mean, Florida absolutely ripped this defense to shreds. It wasn't necessarily like that from the jump. Our first halves, which are honestly usually pretty terrible. How many times have you heard me talk about us coming slow out of the gate and having to fight back? And that wasn't really what happened this time. We came out with some life defensively. Florida was, you know, the warning signs were out there earlier that Florida was moving the ball well and shooting well, but we were doing enough to keep things close, I believe. A halftime score was 37 to 34. We were down at the half. I figured, all right, so far, so good. But then uh, Florida used two second-half runs, one of 14-4, one of 10-2, to put the game completely beyond reach in the second half. Not a ton to say other than that Florida was just, they outclassed us. And the the one stat I want to lead with before I turn you loose, Blake, Florida's effective field goal rate, which is a measure of two and three-point shooting combined that gives extra weight to three-point shooting, their effective field goal rate was 63.5%. And their offensive efficiency rating, where 100 is a good score, was 136 Both of, Both of which were our worst defensive efforts of the entire season. And to me, that's really the story of this one. To Florida's credit, it wasn't that A&M didn't put the effort forth defensively necessarily. We, we weren't great defensively, but Florida shot the lights out. They were phenomenal. You have to give those guys credit. Offensively, every shot they put up went in. It felt like it just seemed like they were throwing basketballs in the ocean from the beach. So I was really impressed with, with the performance that Florida had. And it wasn't just offensively. To me, what stood out was the defensive end of what Florida did. They really frustrated the Aggies. They did a really nice job double-teaming Nebo forcing the ball out of his hands. He wasn't able to take control of the game. They, they did a really nice job of, of disrupting the Aggies' offensive flow. And, and probably one of the better jobs of, of defensive disruption that we've seen in, in conference play, in, in my mind. I think that's the best performance that we've seen against us defensively in, in SEC play. Yeah, there's, there's not a ton else to say. We were... I mean, it was a an overachieving team playing against a good team that played well. And as much as I love our guys, Blake, I really don't think yet we have the tools in our toolbox to defeat a good team that's also playing well, right, if that makes sense. So, it, it, And this that's what this was. This was a team that was better than us on paper, that was executing well. They were making the extra pass, which I know you and I have grown to fear the extra pass, the way we just kind of scramble fighters and close out like that's out of hell. And if you can just... Hold your nerve and make the one or two extra passes. You're going to get a wide-ass open three. And they did that pretty much over again. Uh, you know the old the old adage, uh, I forgot which football coach said this, that, that said uh, we didn't block very well, but we made up for it by not tackling? That was us on the boards. So it's like we, we, we couldn't stop them from shooting well, but we made up for it by not rebounding. Florida got 14 offensive rebounds on their 25 total missed shots, which is our worst uh, rebounding effort of the season, a 56% offensive rebounding rate for the Gators. So I don't know, man. It seems like at a, <laughs> perhaps it's too simplistic to say this, but they made most of their shots and we didn't rebound it when they missed it. I, I'm not sure how much success you're going to have when that's your fact pattern. That is not a recipe for success. I think you're correct there. That's all for me on that one. Uh, obviously, Miller played well, which is cool, but in a game where we were just whitewashed, it's like I don't know how much time really to spend on that, but he was the lone bright spot offensively, so kudos to him for continuing his development, I suppose. Yeah, let's jump forward to Georgia. I think that yeah, there's I, enough I, of, I, I agree. Of there's Florida. Nothing <laughs> there's nothing else here. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to spend too, too much time rehashing what I rehashed uh, at the outset, so we started slow. I thought everything was going to go quite poorly. It got better. We ended up winning. But the cool thing I didn't mention 
was the shirt switch, Blake. The shirt switch. Buzz Williams, our delightful, overly energetic, crazy sometimes coach, uh, sweated through his entire like vest dress shirt combination in the first half against Georgia. So he comes back out in a black long sleeve A&M basketball t-shirt. And we immediately go from, you know, we were minus nine in the first half with, with the old combo plus 14 in the second half with the new combo. So to anyone out there who has changed shirts or refused to leave that spot on the couch or whatever it is you do to try to flip the karma, to try to flip the energy, you're not alone because our head basketball coach just did it and it worked. So that, that was the fun. Yeah, that, that was the fun thing I thought uh, that we could add to this. So. I don't know, man. I'm interested in your opening thoughts because I already kind of laid out the ebb and flow. But we, uh, yeah, we used we used a huge second half run to turn what was looking like a disastrous showing into a 74-69 victory. Yeah, I just want to throw it out here. Uh, Aggie Land Outfitters, David, in our show notes has a a great slogan. I think with the silhouette of Buzz Williams and just a, a shirt that says "Let he who has not switched shirts for karma cast the first stone." you know, give us, give us royalties, yeah, print it up. Uh, you know, or print them up. We'll get, we'll, we'll take a cut of royalties. You know, we can work out an advertising deal on the podcast. We'll get you guys a spot. We'll, we'll talk about this later. Um, yeah. And this game was really interesting in the first half. The team looked pretty disinterested. I'm not going to lie. The effort and the energy wasn't there. I'm not buying that it was a, a sweating through the shirt, a sweating through the vest uh, situation. <laughs> I I don't know exactly what it was that that led to him changing shirts. I, I do think it may have been a spirited rant in, in the locker room at halftime, but something something flipped the switch in the second half. And the team that we saw, I I went back to that old miss game. When at the end of the game, everybody's celebrating, everybody's feeling great. I remember kind of Savion flag, kind of shadow boxing and with, uh, with Buzz Williams on the sideline. It was that kind of energy. The second half against Georgia was, was perfect in that regard. That group of guys came back. And I, I hadn't seen, yes, they had had some wins and they had had some really, you know, some, some good games. I hadn't seen that that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of buy-in since that Ole Miss game, and we saw it in that second half against Georgia, and and it was everything we needed it to be because you started to think exactly in that first half. I was right there with you. I thought we're done. This is it. We've had a good run. We're going to finish with two losses against Georgia this year. Well, I guess that's how it goes, but. The guys flipped the switch and came out and asserted themselves in, in the second half. And I couldn't have been happier after that win. And let's talk turnovers, not just turnovers that we're forcing, but how well we took care of the basketball, right? Because it was obviously it was a heightened level of effort. It was a heightened sense of team. The emotion level on the sideline clearly changed. But what also changed is that we were turning the ball over. We were taking care of the basketball. Uh, we forced 21 turnovers, which is our highest number of first turnovers in four years. And I believe even that number we eclipsed was against, uh, I think, Florida Gulf Coast or some some sort of like non-SEC game. So uh, obviously a huge number of first turnovers there. And then we had a positive assist to turnover ratio, which isn't supposed to be a big deal, but it has kind of become a big deal for us this year. And uh, our turnover rate, so the number of turnovers per total possessions of 16.2%, our third best of the season and our best in SEC play. So we did. We, we had both things, right? It's I had a coach who used to, who used to say, 
effort isn't enough. It's effort plus execution, especially when you're when you're kind of sometimes on the lesser end of the talent scale. And we had both. We had effort and we had execution. Yeah, we we really did. And when you when you look at execution, Emmanuel Miller led the way. He was phenomenal. Uh, career high twenty one points. He had ten rebounds. Led led the team in rebounds. The evolution of this kid's game is phenomenal. He was eleven of fourteen from the line. That was that was a huge thing. I'm really astounded with what I have seen in terms of growth from Emmanuel Miller. He looks like a completely different kid from what we saw early in the season. And it's it's really cool to watch his confidence levels just off the charts right now. So I've, I've got an exercise for you. He's averaging almost but not quite a double-double over his last nine games. He's top 10 in the SEC in both offensive and defensive rebounding rate. I haven't done enough research to actually back this statement, but I'm just going to toss it out there. Emmanuel Miller's late season all freshman team run. Is that what we're seeing? Is he is he pushing his way into that conversation? Oh yeah. I think that there's there's absolutely a possibility he gets he gets to the freshman all freshman team. I think it's a heavy consideration. Especially he's been great since the start of conference play, really. That's what it's, I'm looking it's, at. It's, it's if, been if they really can just forget everything else. Yeah. <laughs> they can just forget everything just, else. I, you can make a case for you it. You could make you could definitely make a case for it. So I'm I'm really impressed with what we've seen from him. What's going to get him is guys like Anthony Edwards, these these one-and-done guys. But when you look at it, I mean, he's got a great case for making the all-freshman team. That was a professional segue by you, sir. That's a good job because you said Anthony Edwards, that same Anthony Edwards that was on the opposite end of the court during this game, the same Anthony Edwards who dropped 29-16 and 16 against us in Athens. And we held him to six points on two of seven shooting. I don't know how exactly. I heard Tom Cream make a reference to him uh, to some sort of bug, but obviously not enough to keep him out of the game. Uh, I just think it's it's pretty interesting that we can comfortably make the declarative statement that Emmanuel Miller was the best freshman on the court on Saturday. He really was. He he was phenomenal. I I do think you could see that Edwards wasn't right, but at the same time. It, even if he was right, I don't think it would have mattered. I think the Aggies were prepared for Edwards as much as anything. I think that that what happened in Athens fully prepared the Aggies to, to shut down Edwards at any means necessary. So I think that the way the Aggies came out after halftime, it made the result pretty much an inevitability. But I think that's a good place to put a bow on this Georgia game. And before we move on, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, and we're back. Let's let's talk this Alabama game, David. Uh, we, we saw an interesting result tonight, a 74-68 win. Walk us through this one, because this was this was kind of an interesting contest. It was. It was a an almost comical clash of styles because for everything that Buzz tries to do, work the ball inside, get to the lane, shoot free throws, grind out possessions, uh, keep the opposing team, you know, don't let them shoot for as long as you possibly can. Uh, Bama under Nate Oates is almost the antithesis of every one of those things. 
They so they lead the SEC in tempo. We're last in the SEC in tempo. They have the highest per- percentage of three pointers per game. We have the lowest. It is it really it truly was a clash of styles. And they came out. You know, it's you know the the world kind of makes sense when t- when people act the way they're supposed to. Uh, and they came out and then they were exactly as advertised. They came out running and gunning, uh, just really shooting the first thing inside of twenty five feet that looked good to them, and missing pretty much everything. So we had a pretty comfortable lead for most of the first half. Uh, we had, I would say, like we maintained kind of that like four to six, you know, where we were comfortably ahead for large portions of the first half. And then Bama, I mean, the thing about the way they play is they can put together 10, 12 points in the blink of an eye. And we missed a couple of assignments. Things got out of hand there. Uh, and we found ourselves on the back end of a 12-0 run. And it almost felt unfair that Bama had a 34 to 28 halftime advantage. It just didn't seem right. It felt like we had played better. It felt like they were missing most of their shots. But that instant offense type of, of the way they play, just it, it, it carried them to a, to a halftime advantage. In the second half, I think the easiest way to describe the way things were in the second half was that it was just a complete reverse. Like it was a, at almost literally every level, a complete reversal of what had happened in the first half. So Bama was up six at halftime. And then they kind of maintained that comfortable advantage. You know, we were really kind of in striking distance, not really. Uh, our, our friend of the program, Aubrey Bloom, has something on Twitter he likes to call the mad creep, which is when a team just hangs around and they should be put away and they're not and they just hang and they hang. And that's what we did. We were we were there between six and eight for the entirety of the second half. And then we hit a 12 run of our own that pushed this one out of reach. Uh, it was really, I mean, out of nowhere, it was the, the, the crowd. I forgot what that Bama Stadium was called, but they were just stunned because it looked like it looked like it was an eventuality that they were going to pull away and they never quite did. And they paid for that. So I will say <laughs> in my notes here, I wrote, you could honestly give a clinic on how not to close a game with the way we attempted to close this game. We, we really didn't play well, and our inability to close teams does eventually need to get addressed, but the way this season is gone, I'm going to take it. It took 10 minutes of real time longer than it should have with all the fouling and reviews and us fouling on threes and making silly mistakes down the stretch, but at the end, job done. 7-6 and six in SEC play, 74-68 to 68 road victory for the good guys. Yeah, and let's start with... Quentin Jackson. I, I just want to. I know we have established my my affinity for for big men, but uh, Quentin Jackson has asserted himself as a a big cog in this machine. He keeps things going. It's really cool to watch the evolution of his game. Where in the last oh, I'd say probably the last ten games, really, he's asserted himself. Going back to the South Carolina game, I felt like is where he kind of made that step forward. And you haven't seen him really take a step back since. He only had six points against Florida, but I kind of disregard that result just because everybody struggled in that one. Same. Yeah, I'll I'll just toss that game out. Absolutely. That's the outlier for me. But tonight, he goes for 20 points. He was 13 to 14 from the line, had ice water in his veins down the stretch knocking down free throws to to put this thing away. I was really impressed with what I saw from Quentin. And I'm honestly kind of sad because it's this realization of, oh yeah, he's he's a JUCO transfer. We've got him for only one more year. It's just that that disappointment of you could use this guy for another two or three years in this system because I, I think he's going to be something really special, especially coming into next year being fully integrated into Buzz's system, I'm really excited about the future for this kid. 
Yeah, he's. A, I mean, he's a surefire starter moving forward, right? For the rest of this season and for the entirety of next year. To me, it's it's that simple. The way he's played in the last five games has ended any conversation of whether he needs to, or whether he has truly knocked down the door, so to speak. And I use that terminology because we mentioned in our last pod, he was knocking on the door. He had still been coming off the bench, but he was playing better and better and getting more and more minutes. And he had built an almost uncomfortable situation where we had six guys clearly capable of playing the crunch time minutes. And it was this juggling act of who's who's the odd man out today, who is it next Wednesday, and it just kind of like reading the room, seeing who has it that evening, who doesn't. You and I posed the question, should the odd man out be Savion Flag, which ever since we referenced, ever since we made that reference, he has played three pretty solid games. He's still not playing at an all-SEC second-team level, but he's had double-digit points in all three games, uh, like reasonably efficient shooting numbers, rebounds, assists, etc. So it's clearly not Flag as the odd man out. You got to leave Jackson in. Mitchell's been more efficient lately and a little more spry on the defensive end, which I'll talk about a little bit. Uh, and then Miller, and you need Miller and Nebo on the board. So who does that leave out? Leaves out Andre Gordon. Um, I think we might be seeing the freshman wall here, Blake, because this guy has really not done much in the last two games. The team, uh, the sets when he was running the point just really don't look right. And I think we just, we had, we asked a lot of this kid and we asked a lot of him really early mentally and physically both and he did an admirable job for as long as he could i don't know if uh, so i don't know it's uh, we, we spoke at length last pod about the difference between high school and college basketball and what is that difference it's the difference between 22 and 35 games right where do you see that difference you see it right about right now so i think that might be what we're seeing with gordon here how do you feel about the five that have separated themselves and do you think that's the way we're going to roll for the rest of the season yeah, I think that that is your your primary five. Going back to Gordon, maybe it's a little bit of the. I think it is the freshman wall that's the primary factor, and maybe the book is out on him a little bit. You know, teams have figured out how to play him. That says something that 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 tends to happen. You get a guy in who is a freshman. He's young. He's learning. He he knows one way and. When you figure out how to stop that one thing or that one way of playing, things don't look right. Like you said, it's it's this this hesitation of, okay, I can't do the thing that I know how to do, so what do I do now? And I think you're seeing that a little bit. He's he's just not able to to attack the way that he wants to. Teams have figured out how to how to stop him, and and he just the second and third options. He hasn't built those branches yet off of that main trunk of this is what I do. So that comes with time. It comes with maturity. And I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see him take a little bit of a back seat in, in these games, especially if they're close. Maybe if some of these turn into uh, blowouts or, you know, more substantial losses or more substantial wins, who knows? Maybe you'll see him get some opportunities there to get more playing time, but I do think he's gonna he's gonna slide back into the number six, number seven role, uh, coming off the bench for this team. And that's not that's not always the worst thing in the world. Uh, if for an incoming freshman, I view that as a reasonable ceiling for most incoming freshmen at a Power Five program. Is they come in, they give you ten to fifteen minutes, they acclimate themselves with the speed and the intensity, and you just watch them grow over time. Hopefully, they're starting by the you know by the end of the year. I would say Miller has exceeded what a freshman typically gives you, and Gordon may have exceeded that originally, but 
honestly, like this is kind of the way it typically works, right? It's rare for, you know, if you're not the Kentuckys of the world and if you're not grabbing Anthony Edwards, it's rare for a freshman to come in and be an impact player and give you 30 to 35 every night. So if this is the way it plays out for the rest of the year, I'm still fine with it. And I'm also fairly comfortable that it doesn't necessarily mean his growth is stunted moving forward. Yeah, I think that that's, that's absolutely a fair assessment. So I want to talk about just how many threes the Tide shot. So we're going to flip it from the individual perspective to the team perspective because you and I talked about Buzz being the second best coach in the country at keeping the opposition out of or outside the arc. And Bama shot 44 threes today, which is all the more bizarre when compared to their 15 shots taken inside the paint. So 44 outside <laughs> the paint, 15 inside the paint. For those scoring at home, that is a 74.6 percentage of shots taken beyond the arc. By far the most we have forced. But for Bama, who, like I said, is one of the runniest, gunniest teams in the country, it's their highest percentage of threes all year. So I don't know what it was, man. I know I called it a clash of styles at first, which it definitely was. But maybe in this one context, we were like feeding them the one thing they desperately desire. where All they want to do is run and shoot threes. And we were like, all right, y'all, shoot threes. We don't care. So it's like we we fed we fed their exact plan. And I guess it worked in our favor because they really weren't hitting today. But isn't that I just I just thought that was a truly bizarre number to see literally almost three fourths of your offensive sets and then a three point attempt. Well, and this is it, it's not unusual. The a high number of, of three point shots, as you alluded to, this is what Nate Oates is doing, right? This is his style. It's it's a lot of three point shots. However, 75 percent of your shots coming from outside the arc that's that's a whole new level that's that's just outrageous so a&m was was able to take a sledgehammer to bama's ncaa tournament hopes for a second year in a row we certainly were we have been that team for more than just alabama but it's it's a role we're certainly uh, i certainly happy to play i would suggest um we're kind of burying the lead here, though, because I'm just realizing we've we've been talking about this game for probably between eight and ten minutes, and we haven't mentioned that we were 46% from beyond the arc ourselves. Uh, we were killing it from downtown tonight. That is our best percentage effort from the season, and it's only the second game all year where we've hit double-digit threes. And this is this third stat is the best one of them all. We had better shooting percentage outside the arc than we did inside the arc. This Texas A&M basketball team was more likely to make a basket if it was thrown at the hoop from outside the three-point line, which is something I literally did not, did not think we'd say all year. So to me, that's kind of the that's the final cap I want to make on this game is like, obviously, yeah, we did everything we wanted to do defensively, but the reason we won is because we shot the ball well. I mean, it was our best shooting effort of the year. So kudos to the guys for uh, shooting efficiently. Yeah, I didn't think that that was possible for Texas A&M. I think uh, I thought with our deal with the devil that was actually outlawed. So uh, glad to know that they they found a loophole somewhere in there. I will say that you and I have talked about over the last several episodes, kind of that what's the right balance between two point and three point attempts. I feel like it's something probably 15 or under these last three games. The, the attempts were a bit higher than, than I would like to see. Uh, there were 23 attempts against Florida, uh, 22 against Georgia, and then tonight, as you mentioned, 24. So we're right in that kind of that 22 to 26 range uh, for for three point attempts in the last week. To me, that's that's too much for this team. But I think what it does is it helps keep your opponents honest, uh, especially when what we saw against Florida, people are 
peeling off of the outside shooters, trying to double down on Nebo and force the ball out of his hands. Now that teams are starting to double down inside more, you're going to have to knock down threes. You're going to get some open looks. Maybe this is an opportunity for us to improve the, the shooting numbers by getting more wide open looks as teams look to kind of compress things inside. So I agree across the board. I think I think that kind of closes the book on our current results and, and on the Bama game specifically. So I wanted to look forward to the next piece of the schedule. And the so the, the Bama game specifically represented a really interesting quirk in our schedule in that at least as of the time I made this determination, I don't know if it's true now, but I think as of Monday, our next five games were going to be against the presumptive five best teams in the SEC in Bama, Mississippi State, Kentucky, LSU, and Auburn. And that's part of why the halftime deficit against Georgia felt so foreboding because it just felt like, oh man, our, you know, you could argue that five of the six or seven toughest games of the year for us are the next five games up and it felt so daunting. But now, recovering from that Georgia debacle, turning it into a win, getting this nice win on the road against Bama, the fact that I referenced that the NITs of the world have started to come calling, you can now look at this as an opportunity because if postseason play is to happen, the one thing we don't really have is a ton of, I would say, quality wins. We have some we have some good wins against fair opposition, but we don't have any truly quality wins. I'm interested to see, Blake, home against Mississippi State, home against Kentucky. Can we grab one of those? Yeah, I think that there's a really good opportunity. And I think it'll be interesting to see the way that those those games shake out. In all honesty, I feel like Mississippi State is probably a slightly better chance than Kentucky, and I know that seems a little bit obvious, but Kentucky is not without their flaws either. I've seen them play in person, and they, they have the ability to look great, but they have the ability to look pretty average. Uh, I think that they've kind of figured things out here over the stretch of the SEC schedule, so I think that they're starting to round into form a little bit more. Mississippi State, I feel like they're they're a solid tournament team, but to me it feels like the book is still out a little bit on them, and maybe there's an opportunity for A&M to sneak up and, and steal one there. I would agree with that. I don't think we're going to be quite as out-talented against Mississippi State, uh, against Kentucky. It's entirely possible that at any given point they have four of the top five guys on the floor, so that one, that one uh, the margin for error is going to be a little slimmer, but... I don't know, Blake. I'm feeling good, and I'll say this. If it doesn't go well this next week, I think by the next time you and I talk, I think we'll st- it won't necessarily have the same damaging outlook on the season that it would have had if we were looking, staring down the barrel of a five-game losing streak, right, going, oh, man, two more good teams. Like These would be these would both be understandable losses given the context of the season and what the matchup looks like on paper. So in that sense, it's kind of freeing, right? I'm just looking forward to it. I see it as a, as a pure opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly the way that we should approach this. This is an opportunity for these guys to just play with house money, right? You've accomplished everything that was expected for this group and more. I think when we when we talked about it this season, at the beginning of the year, we never anticipated a, a team that at this stage in the game would be 7-6 and six in conference play. So... To me, this is this is icing on the cake, right? And it's an interesting thing to think about. What if? If we had not cratered in the Orlando Invitational, where is this team at? Are we an Orlando Invitational debacle away from being an NCAA bubble team? I think that's an easy argument to make. I think I think if we beat Harvard, 
let's say uh, let's call it two and one, right? Let's call I, it two I think and one. Two and one, exactly. With, with, a, with a loss to a solid team. Lost to Maryland. Uh, yeah, lost to Maryland. Win in the third place game, just for the sake of example. Uh, that team is what would that be? Fifteen and eleven with the same seven and six in the SEC, but without the Fairfield loss, which is just the the anchor around our neck this year. Well, hey, Blake, let me phrase it to you in a different way. What is the difference between the hypothetical you just proposed and Alabama's actual resume coming into this game? To, me, to me, there's no difference. To me, right. and, that's and, it. And that's that's exactly my point. They were right on the bubble. They were, in, they were in the next four out heading into this game, right? Exactly. I think this win over Alabama would put us into a last four out bubble. It's kind of disheartening to think about how one tournament – and, and two bad results could drag this down. Mm-hmm. But it is a, a very encouraging thing to think about. How close is this team? How, how close are they really to making an NCAA tournament berth? I think a lot of us felt like, okay, this is a rebuild that's going to take two years. And that it could be three. Let's be honest. It could be three. Now I think we turn around and say, no. Two years, maybe there's a really good shot next year that this that this thing finds its way back into the big dance. And what what a story that would be. Uh, and and so before I tee you up for your for your final point to kind of close this out, I'll I'll leave from my perspective with this. So so my, my one goal coming into this season, Blake, was to build the foundation that future teams could build upon. We needed this team to come in fully buy into the process and then have the future influx of talent enter a foundation where the process was already fully in place. I think that's why the Billy Gillespie's of the world, for example, went to Kentucky and failed because they had to go into a talent-rich environment and attempt to implement what is an honestly grading and difficult pro- – not process, but a difficult environment from scratch into a talent-rich environment. Not easy to do. The reason Billy Gillespie succeeded at A&M, he built that environment first with an under-talented group and then uh, – actually, to call his 05 team under-talented is probably unfair. That team had a reasonable amount of talent. But as the but talent- that, te- that a team overachieved. You're right. So let me reframe it. It was an overachieving team. And then as the talent increased into a a group that had already fully bought in, that's when those teams truly started to soar. And I think, to your point, we are very much looking at a possibility where that could happen in year two, where you know some of the guys we're seeing coming down the pipeline next year are going to be coming in into an environment where this sucker is already locked and loaded and everybody's bought in. And I think it's really not going to be that long until we stop seeing ourselves as the less talented team in most of these games, right? So that's the piece I'm looking forward to. Um, and that's really that really lends or it really adds to the house money feel of these last five games because I truly feel, Blake, that that job is done. We've done it. I don't want to put this out in, into the world with too much gusto, but if we lose out and lose in the first round of the SEC tournament, this season is still a success. So... I'm looking forward to what I think could really be viewed as a stress-free final three weeks of the season. You're exactly right. And inevitably, I'm going to I'm going to throw this out there. There's going to be a close loss in one of these games and you're going to we're going to feel the sting of disappointment to say, "Man, we could have had that one. We really could have had that one." But that's not a terrible experience for a group of guys that are building a foundation. That's not a terrible experience to, to go up against an Auburn or a Kentucky or an LSU. And, and they've already done it once to LSU, right? We, we had an overtime loss 
in Reed Arena to LSU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, it, yeah, it's the it's not unfathomable for for us to consider the possibility of a a close close loss against one of these teams coming down the stretch. And who knows? Maybe they turn one into a win. And at that point, you're saying that's the foundation, right? That's that's the catalyst for building into next year. And that's what these last five games are really about is about the foundation has been laid. Now you're starting to look for catalysts to to propel you into the 2021 season. And that's that's where we should be focused as a fan base, enjoying kind of this stress-free playing with house money feel. So Blake, let's do it. Let's play with some house money. Let's see what the team can do with really nothing to lose against some quality opposition. I'm excited, man. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Talk to you next week. 